Section 21 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Austin Henry Layard, Part 2. His plan was not to begin excavations at Nineveh, opposite Mosul, but twenty miles south, at the great mound of Nimrod, which bore the name of the mighty hunter Nimrod. Xenophon and his ten thousand had seen and wondered at its pyramid. There he would be free from the army of mischievous spectators that would swarm from Mosul, had he selected the site of Nineveh, and from the constant interference of the Turkish governor. The Pasha at Mosul was a cruel scoundrel who was robbing and killing the people as his whim or greed prompted, and had reduced the tribes of the neighborhood to a state of terror. Accordingly, Mr. Layard, who was armed with protecting letters from the British ambassador and the port, thought it wise to conceal his purpose, let it be reported that he was going on a hunting expedition, and with a few tools and a supply of guns and spears, on the 8th of November, 1845, accompanied only by his cawas, the soldier attendant detailed for the protection of travelers, a servant and one laborer, he floated down the Tigris and in four hours reached the bourne of his long hopes. He had the mound, he had the money, and now he would dig. The Arabs have strange stories of this ruin. The palace, they say, was built by Ather, the vizier of Nimrod. There Abraham break in pieces the idols worshipped by the unbelievers. Nimrod was angry and waged war on the holy patriarch. Abraham prayed to God, Deliver me, O God, from this man who worships stones, and boasts himself to be lord of all the kings. And God said to him, How shall I punish him? And the prophet answered, To thee armies are as nothing, and the strength and power of men likewise. Before the smallest of thy creatures will they perish. And God was pleased at the faith of his servant, and he sent a gnat that vexed Nimrod day and night, so that he built himself a room of glass in that palace, that he might dwell therein and shut out the insect. But the gnat entered also, and passed by his ear into his brain, upon which it fed and increased day by day, so that the servants of Nimrod beat his head continually with a mallet, that he might have some ease from his pain. But he died after suffering these torments four hundred years. And after him the mound was named Nimrod. It was dark when Layard and his little company reached the place. They found nearby a few huts occupied by poor Arabs who had been harried by the Turkish pasha. There they slept, or tried to sleep but the explorer could not sleep. Hear him. Hopes, long cherished, were now to be realized, or were to end in disappointment. Visions of palaces underground, of gigantic monsters, of sculpted figures and endless inscriptions floated before me. After forming plan after plan for removing the earth and extricating these treasures, I fancied myself wandering in a maze of chambers from which I could find no outlet. Then again, all was reburied, and I was standing on the grass-covered mound. Exhausted, I was at length sinking into sleep, when hearing the voice of Awad, I rose from my carpet and joined him outside the tent. The day had already dawned. The lofty cone and broad mound of Nimrod broke like a distant mountain on the morning sky. Awad, his host, was a little chief among the Arabs and was engaged to take charge of the diggers. The first morning he had six Arabs at work and found alabaster slabs with cuneiform inscriptions. He was now sure he would succeed. It is not necessary to give the diary of his work. To be sure, the villainous Pasha 
forbade him to continue and recalled him to mosul but a new governor was sent from constantinople under whom he had no difficulty a great palace had been found and chamber after chamber was excavated the walls covered with bas reliefs and inscriptions then came strange gigantic lions with human heads that had been placed by the old assyrian king to guard the entrances to his court what was the amazement of the arabs and turks cannot be told first the head was uncovered it stood out from the earth placid and vast here layard tell the story he had been away to visit a neighboring chief i was returning to the mound when i saw two arabs urging their mares to the top of their speed hasten obey exclaimed one of them hasten to the diggers for they have found nimrod himself by allah it is wonderful but it is true we have seen him with our eyes there is no god but god and both joining in this pious exclamation they galloped back to the tent layard hastened to the trench and there he saw what he knew to be the head of a gigantic lion or bull such as bata had uncovered at Khorsabad. it was an admirable preservation the expression was calm yet majestic and the outline of the features showed a freedom and knowledge of art that was scarcely to be looked for at so early a period says the explorer i was not surprised that the arabs had been amazed and terrified at this apparition it required no stretch of imagination to conjure up the most strange fancies the gigantic head blanched with age thus rising from the bowels of the earth might well have belonged to one of those fearful beings which are pictured in the traditions of the country as appearing to mortals slowly ascending from the regions below this is not the work of men's hands exclaimed sheikh abderrahman who had galloped to the mound on the first news but of those infidel giants of whom the prophet peace be with him has said that they were higher than the tallest date tree this is one of the idols which noah peace be with him cursed before the flood in this opinion all the bystanders concurred the arabs have a ready explanation for every fresh discovery when some years later mr layard's assistant and successor in the work of excavation mr rassam uncovered at abu haba a remarkable bas-relief with the figure of the seated sun-god and three approaching worshippers the arab diggers rushed to him declaring that they had found noah and his three sons shem ham and japheth and demanded a sheep to make a feast the report of the wonderful discovery of a royal palace evidently older than those of nineveh with magnificent decorations in alabaster and cuneiform inscriptions reached beyond mosul to constantinople sir stratford canning was delighted with the result of his expedition he had a passion for discovery as well as diplomacy and it is to him that the british museum is indebted for the priceless marbles of halicarnassus he now obtained for mr layard a firman permitting him to make what excavations he wished then the news reached london and the british museum made a grant to support the work all difficulties were now removed conditions were even more favorable for him than they are now there was then no imperial museum in constantinople to which all objects found must be taken but those that dug had the right to carry off their prizes to london or paris to tell the story of the further excavations is unnecessary it is all given in layard's two splendid volumes nineveh and its fine remains and babylon and nineveh and the bas-reliefs statues bronzes ivories and inscriptions are magnificently reproduced in great folio volumes from nimrod he went back to mosul and there opened the two mounds opposite kuyinjik and nebuunas the site of old nineveh 
There, more palaces and friezes were found of other kings. Then he went back to London, closing his successful campaign, more profitable, if not more glorious, than those of war, and published the story of his work. Its effect was marvelous. No such popular book of travels had ever appeared, for it was a story of adventure and also of strange discovery. Mr. Layard had not suspected that he had the literary gift, but he had it in rare measure. He had gained an interview of the heart of tribes, Moslem and Christian and semi-pagan, by his sympathy with them and his knowledge of their tongues. He had lived in their tents and huts. He had saved them from persecution by Turkish governors. Their gratitude to him was beyond words, and he told their story with affection and enthusiasm. Then his discoveries were in lands made historic not only by the campaigns of Xenophon and Alexander, but made almost sacred by the Bible history. These were the lands whence came the armies that fought with Israel. These were the kings whose wars are told in the Jewish records, and the annals of these kings were found in their palaces, and they gave full accounts of wars of which the Bible had given the outline. Piety and learning joined to give extraordinary interest to these discoveries and to this report of them. Mr. Layard found himself famous, and the monuments he was bringing to the British Museum were, and still are, the most extraordinary and fascinating in all its corridors. Of course, a new grant was made in behalf of the British Museum, and of course he went back to continue and extend his researches. Now he wished to go further south, beyond Nimrod to Kalashurgat, the yet earlier capital of Assyria, and yet further to Babylon, that he might see and test the multitude of mounds of ancient Chaldea, the real land of Nimrod, the seat of Eden, and the Tower of Babel, far more ancient than any one of the three capitals of Assyria. While he did scarce more than to visit and report on the Babylonian mounds, his diggings in Nineveh itself were of vast importance, for there he found the library of Ashurbanabal on clay tablets, which has given us our chief knowledge of the literature and learning of the ancient East. In 1852, he returned to England to publish his Monuments of Nineveh, and left the further exploration to his able lieutenant, Mr. Rassam, and to a noble succession of explorers who should follow, and to a no less noble line of scholars who should interpret the inscriptions and recover the history of the nations, so that we now know more exactly the history of Babylonian and Assyrian kings, and from more authentic records, and more completely the social condition and business life of the countries than we do the history of Greece, or the life of the Greeks even at the time of Pericles, and that, too, for a period of 3,000 years. To illustrate this fact, let us take the black obelisk of Shalmaneser II, found by Layard at Nimrod. It is a column of basalt seven feet high and about two feet wide at the base, from which it narrows slightly, until near the top it is reduced by three steps. On the four sides is engraved in five rows of bas-reliefs, twenty in all, the pictured history of the royal conquests, the submission of kings, and the presentation of tribute. Above and below, and between, in 210 lines, was cut an inscription which explained the figures and gave a full historical and, of course, contemporary and official account of the glorious events of the royal reign. Not a line was defaced. At the British Museum, it can be seen today as perfect as when engraved 27 centuries ago. Other monuments of Shalamanassar have been found. One is a great monolith with a portrait of the king in all his fine array, and with 156 lines of text. Another is a series of splendid bronze plates that covered great wooden gates, on which, in repose work, were pictures of the royal victories, and inscriptions explaining them. 
the bible tells us of the rivalries and jealousies of ahab and jehu kings of israel and Ben-Hadad and haziel kings of damascus how surprising it is to find here not only the story of the successive campaigns of shalmaneser against these same kings the number of their chariots and soldiers but to see pictured before us the tribute sent by jehu we learn that shalmaneser reigned from eight fifty nine to eight twenty five b c and we have the record of all his successive campaigns the first twenty six of which he led in person there is not another country of which before the invention of printing we have so minute a history and all had been lost except the mention of a name or two whether historical or legendary we hardly knew until layard and his fellow explorers opened the mounds of assyria but enough for layard he is only one though the principal one of all the explorers of the buried records of the empires of the tigris and euphrates and babylonia and assyria are not the only countries that history required us to explore greece and its neighboring states and islands have not even yet been fairly investigated much of asia minor is still a virgin field syria and palestine have hardly been scratched with the spade more has been done in egypt but more yet is to be done and when we go into the further east of persia and old elam not to speak of the yet farther east of central asia now just beginning to yield strange treasures to daring travellers and ancient india and china how ancient we know not at all there is field for centuries of further research for we must go back past empires and kingdoms and tribal conditions to the very beginning of the human race on earth even if it so be to the first pithecanthropus which men of science tell us was the link which connected homo sapiens with the race of primitive simians and all this it may well be is preserved in undecaying records just a few feet under the ground if only one knew where to dig for it nay we now know where to dig for the most and best of it and we only await the stratford cannings who will give the money and the austin layards who have the enthusiasm for the work after layard and rassam after rawlinson and bada george smith took flying trips to the site of nineveh twice that he might gather the remaining fragments of the great library of ashurnababal and he died in the field far from home it was he that found among layard's tablets the babylonian account of the deluge so much like that in the bible he was the first of a second generation who following rawlinson and oppert decipherers as well as explorers were able to read as they found i can only mention the names of the englishmen taylor and loftus of the frenchmen place and de sarzac and later the americans peters hilprecht and haynes who have so faithfully explored the extremely archaic mound of niffer which i had the honor to recommend for excavation after i had visited the mounds of southern babylonia in the winter of eighteen eighty four to eighty five and now the germans with scientific as well as commercial and political purpose with their railroad to pass down the valley through baghdad to the persian gulf which gives them predominant influence have sent expeditions well equipped with scholars and engineers to the choicest sites in babylonia to warka the ancient eric and to babylon itself and with teuton thoroughness they are excavating the most famous of ancient ruins and gathering fresh treasures of archaeological research nor have they left the land of the hittites unexplored for germany claims the first rights politically in all anatolia the right of succession and possession when the turk is expelled and german archaeological science is bound to be first on that field and now what have we found as the fruit of all this labor of exploration is it worth the labor and the expense let us look first 
it can only be a glance, at Egypt, for Egypt was the land first and most persistently explored. The French government for scores of years has been at work there. Germans and Italians have explored the ruins, two English societies have for years kept expeditions in the field, and just now a Californian university sends an American Egyptologist to uncover the tombs and read the hieroglyphs of the kings. Not only are the figured monuments of Egypt published in princely folios, but its records have been translated and its lost history recovered to the world's knowledge. Instead of the bare pharaoh of the Bible, a common designation for all the kings, and in place of a bare list of names and dynasties copied from Mentheo, and so altered and corrupted in the copying as to be neither Greek nor Egyptian, we have on scarab, or gravestone, or pyramid, or rock sepulchre wall, in his own spelling, the name of almost every king from the latest time of the Ptolemies back to the first king of the first dynasty, 5,000, or was it 6,000 years before Christ. And not their names only, but the very picture of their wars. We see how they went up the Nile and fought the blacks of Abyssinia, and brought back the spoils of Puntui, see them sending their squadrons into Syrian Asia and waging a dubious battle with the Hittites before the walls of Hamath, where Ramses, in his lion-guarded chariot, performs prodigies of valor, and from which he returns not only to paint on sacred walls the picture of his victory, but also to inscribe a copy of the Treaty of Peace with the Hittite King, the earliest treaty in the preserved annals of diplomacy. Well wrought that Ramesses the Great, for eternal fame in the sixty years of his reign, fifteen centuries before the birth of our Lord. But what fame had been his, had not explorers and excavators and scholars dug and found and copied and translated what the sands had covered for centuries. And today, the curious traveler stops in sight of the pyramids on the banks of the Nile and enters the Bulak Museum, and there he sees, set up before him, the very mummy of Ramesses himself, and of a dozen other royal personages, rifled from their tombs and displayed for your amazement and mine. There is the very Pharaoh. You can see his features, you can touch his coffin, who chased the children of Israel out of Egypt. There are the household implements, the furniture of their homes, the jewelry their queens wore, queens who were also sisters of the kings, as Sarah was the sister of Abraham. Or would you know of some great revolution in Egypt? These decipherers of the inscriptions will tell you how the shepherd kings overthrew the native dynasty, coming with their armies from Asia long before Ramesses, and changed religion and customs, under whom Jacob and his sons found hospitable welcome, until their hated race was expelled by a stronger native dynasty that knew not Joseph. Or they will tell you of the royal reformer Tunakten, son of a famous eastern mother, a queen from the banks of the Euphrates. Taught by her, perhaps, a purer religion, he attempted to replace the worship of Egypt's bestial gods by the worship of the one only great god, whose symbol was the sun. But the priestly clan was too strong for him, and the succeeding pharaohs destroyed his records and chiseled out his name where it had been cut in stone, that no memory of his sacrilege might be preserved. A royal Moses there could not be. The worshipper of one god, whether king or son of Pharaoh's daughter, could bring no reformation to Egypt. End of section 21.